The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome, good morning, and I guess I always want to start out with uh, appreciation for everybody's practice coming here to sit. It's not always an easy thing, and this morning I think what I wanted to talk about is mindfulness, and maybe go into some detail, um, because we use the word so often, or we hear it so often, and even I sometimes use it in a way where I feel like my understanding of it is very limited and not as complete as I would like it to be. So I feel motivated to explore it a little bit more this morning because I taught a couple of nights ago at a yoga studio basic breath meditation and an introduction to mindfulness. And I got a question from a young woman who was relatively new to the practice and, you know, just in a straightforward way. So if I pay attention to my breath, then I'm going to find freedom and my life will be good. (laughs) And I had to say, I I felt a little stumped because there was this huge vacuum and I wanted to offer all the teachings in a very pithy, concise way, and I think I just stumbled over myself, and I think she left more confused than enlightened, so it compelled me to do a little bit of deeper exploration or remembering maybe some of the early years in practice where um, I got to sit a lot of long retreats and had at the time maybe a clearer understanding and a deeper understanding of mindfulness. And over the years, teaching basic instruction I've just kind of maybe glossed over a lot of the deeper things because you can only say so much in 15, 20 minutes. And I like to think that if it's interesting enough for people, they'll figure it out for themselves. And that's really one of the beautiful things about this practice is it's wonderful to hear the teachings, but we're not asked to take anything on faith Um, but just kind of test it out, see if it makes sense to us, and um, see what we discover on our own. So when I started to contemplate, well, what what is really mindfulness then, and what are we doing? And of course, all the normal um, descriptions and answers that sound good come to mind. (laughs) Um, Paying attention, bringing this quality of attentiveness and awareness to what is happening in the present moment. And when I teach to beginners or people who are very new to this, I I try to offer, would like to offer, that there's something quite beautiful in just paying attention without all the extra layers that we put on something. And sometimes that's very hard to describe. Can something be so simple as the breath moving in and out, free of our our ideas around the breath or what we want the breath to be like or what we want our practice to be like or this particular sit to be like or um, any special experience we might want to grasp? And it's actually a pretty tall order to, to ask 
uh, can we let go of a lot of the constructs and conceptual thinking that go behind every moment of our experience, really? <laughs> so sometimes I feel stumped. <laughs> so I guess what I'd like to do is maybe um, parse that out in some ways that have become maybe it's made it a little bit clearer to me what are some expressions of mindfulness um, and might be helpful for us in contemplating it for ourselves and figuring out what's going on when we bring this quality of attention, their attention or awareness to what's going on, um, free from uh, a lot of our added values, beliefs, wants, desires, judgments, criticisms. So I listened to one of Joseph Goldstein's talks. He was a teacher of mine early on in my long retreat practice. And I value greatly his um, clarity and wisdom, things that I maybe aren't so strong in. (laughs) So trying to, let's see if I can (laughs) express it clearly. And if I don't, then please... uh, I hope it doesn't confuse you more. Let it go <laughs> and do the practice that works for you. <laughs> so there are four, four expressions of mindfulness that I found helpful that he described. So the first is using mindfulness as a stake or a pole or a, uh, something that's very solid in the ground that brings us to the present moment. Um, the quality of an unwavering mind, the fact that we're actually willing to do the practice and come take a look at what's happening right here, right now. And so mindfulness has that quality, can have that quality of steadiness. So as we at least embark on this practice, we can look forward to some quality of this practice that keeps us from constantly being tossed about in on our waves of reactivity uh, and desires to all the things that are happening around us uh, and inside of us. So I've, I found that, uh, yes, that makes sense to me. Yes, it's one of the things that we do is we want to plant that flag. And sometimes it's all we can do. Sometimes um, it's, it's in that a hundred times during our sit, our mind's going to wander. And it's that flag that wants to kind of bring us back to this present moment. And, and it's actually quite beautiful because every time we find ourselves caught, there's something quite lovely in that moment of waking up to knowing that we're caught in something and bringing us back to something simple like the breath. So I found that was very useful to me. The second expression that I found that maybe teased apart something that's happening is um, mindfulness can be used as and as our assistant, as our, our guard to our sense doors, and asks us to come face-to-face with our experience. So not only are we being asked to pay attention, but we're being asked to pay attention with this quality of being very present, presence of mind. And oftentimes we might notice we have maybe not so strong a present, uh, presence of mind. We have a sidelong kind of presence of mind, kind of paying attention to things in our daily life. A little bit of breath, a little bit of thoughts, a little bit of movement, a little bit of this. 
And I think most of us can sense that we're mindful, kind of mindful. It's a different quality of that mindfulness. But what it's asking for us is, can we be really face-to-face to what's happening? Solidly present. Guarding this kind of urge to, or to conditioning to, reach out to experience. So we often want to go out there and engage more fully with the experiences that we're having. Engage in our thoughts because they're pretty juicy or because we want to figure something out. And this quality of mindfulness is asking us to kind of rest and be more receptive. So to let uh, experience happen and for us to be very aware of it, very present with it, but not engaged in the way that we typically do engage in is to kind of reach out. So I noticed this a few times during this sit. I haven't ever actually sat up here on a Sunday morning, and it's been a while since I've talked to such a large group. So uh, I noticed reaching out, what am I going to say? And I would put together the sentences. and I, would, I was reaching out, and then I was reminded, come back and sit and rest and really face what's going on. So there was this desire to kind of figure it out. But underneath was a pounding heart a little bit, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of fear, a little bit of desire to wanting to sound wise and skillful. (laughs) And that was very useful to me because it allowed me to come face to face with that and not get caught up in because I'm not saying anything of the things that I actually put together (laughs) in those few moments when I was sitting. (laughs) But I was able to rest in and be with that experience of anxiety, fear. And this practice has been wonderful in that actually I'm willing to sit with anxiety and fear. It doesn't need to define who I am or say anything about me, but it's just that. It's in that moment that it's coming up. And as I sat with it, I realized, oh, it's just kind of went away. And the breath was very useful as a tool to just stay present, grounded, and be here. So that was the first two, that grounding of the pole, the wanting to be here, the unwavering steady quality of mindfulness, the other quality of of guarding the sense doors and resting in, um, allowing experience to happen, but meeting it face to face. So uh, the third way that expression of mindfulness that I found really resonated with me is this quality of mindfulness that asks us to, to remember what's skillful and what's not, what's wholesome and what's not. Because we're not just being mindful to be mindful of things. We're asking us to be mindful so that we really see all the ways we engage in the world that uh, continue to either bring harm on ourselves or harm on others and create a lot of suffering for ourselves. And I feel like uh, oftentimes we can get caught in mindfulness of the breath, body, thoughts, and we sometimes lose that, that aspect or that component It's in the service of something very noble. And I think most of us, all of us, would like to leave much much more wise, skillful, wholesome, happy, peaceful lives. And in this simple practice, we can be asked to say, we're being asked to, to take notice of what's a skillful action and what's not a skillful action. 
So sometimes we catch ourselves in fantasy or or imagining things that are very desirable and pleasant, but not so wholesome. And um, what is that which kind of brings us back to not follow that through? So two things can arise, and I've experienced these many, many times. And I have to say, I, I'm, hesit- I'm hesitating now to even say the words because it can bring up um, all kinds of different reactions. So I would just say pay attention to the things that come up when you hear these two. They are actually can be seen as very beautiful states and known as the guardians of the world that can help bring us... Um, help us to recognize skillful and unskillful actions. And they are moral shame and moral dread. And oftentimes, those two words can bring up, at least for me, conditioned as maybe not so skillful or states that I'm not really wanting to experience very often. (laughs) But in the way they're taught or in the way they were expressed, it made a lot of sense to me they can be used as valuable tools and are very skillful and beautiful aspects because without this moral compass, then oftentimes we can be floating and we can engage in all kinds of things that are, you know, slightly unwholesome to very unwholesome and not really have something that brings us back and reminds us what it is that we're aiming towards. So moral shame and moral dread. Shame, like uh, I, I experience it as remorse, repugnance at um, unskillful or unwholesome actions or deeds. And in the past, it would be incredibly painful because I think I was conditioned to use it in a very oppressive, punitive way. And I think that many times in the world, they're used in those ways. So that's not a skillful way of, of using it or understanding it. But over time I realized if I didn't have that and ex- feeling of that comes, that would arise when I would engage in something unskillful or un- unwholesome, there would be that lack of a compass. And I, would, I experienced it as a very helpful, skillful, valuable tool, and yet there was a lot of beauty in the fact that it would arise and it would give me motivation to not continue to do those actions. So I'll give an example of that. I was driving down the 280, and um, I was incredibly tired one morning after spending the night out in the city. And uh, I didn't realize that my odometer had inched up to 90 miles per hour. going down this, um, there is a speed trap on part of the 280, uh, oftentimes. Um, and, and as I was driving by, I saw two uh, <laughs> police cars on the side and one with the speed gun. And as he looked at me, I saw him do this. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. <laughs> and both of them, hot pursuit after me. And I pulled over. And then I was sitting there going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I could land in jail <laughs> because this is 
not only um, speeding, but it's an unsafe speed. It really is an unsafe speed. And, um, you know, I was actually grateful for them because, you know, even though I had to spend 45 minutes on the side of the road wearing my Halloween costume from the night before, (laughs) doing all the tests and the breathalyzer and all these things, you know. I was very cooperative because, you know, there was a part of me that was grateful because had he not been there or they not been there, you know, something actually more terrible could have happened. I could have not um, paid attention. It was in that moment of not being mindful. You know, the pedal, the tire, I want to get home and go, you know, so... um, I complied, I did all the tests and everything, and in the end, you know, I said, you're doing your job, and I value that, you know, so. He looked at me, and he said, you were so cooperative, I've never really had anyone that was that cooperative. And I think he could sense my remorse <laughs> or um, at, at what had happened and transpired. And... He said, I'm going to let you go with the warning. And I literally said, oh, my God, thank you. (laughs) I bowed to him. (laughs) And I was filled with not only, you know, like just deep appreciation that I wasn't going to have to pay an exorbitant thing in my fingers, but really that I wasn't afraid to feel that remorse and that it did come up. And that even when I got home and went under the bed and under the covers, waves of remorse, because if I live out what could have happened driving at that very unsafe speed, you know, uh, it could have been so much more tragic. And sometimes it takes that is to live out, what if I did do those unskillful actions and someone caught me? (laughs) It's also a useful tool. So not in the way to cause us guilt, or blame, or punishment. That's not the way that it's being taught or expressed. But as a useful tool, they are guardians of the world. Very useful. I often think now, in the conditions... I come from a country, now that's split in two and has been for the past 60 years, and they're pointing nuclear missiles at each other. You know, And I sometimes wish, the guardians of the world, please you know, show your power. <laughs> um, should these should the leaders of this world actually live out what would happen you know if they used the power that they have in in these unskillful ways what would happen what would what would transpire the level and depth of that much tragedy so i think most of us probably live a relatively wholesome clean lives so i don't think it goes to that extreme but i think we do you know we are faced with in our small ways you know um, moments or um, situations where we make choices and uh, sometimes these two can be very useful they might just step in and um, be aids to us you know so uh, moral shame and moral dread, dread, fear of the consequences of unskillful actions, whether they're imagined (laughs) or, you know, if they've already happened, you know, can be very useful to us. So I'm thankful now, and and I, I really do caution people, see what happens when those things come up. And if they are filled with these conditioned responses of of um oppression and punishment, guilt 
you know, then they're not going to be useful. And to just see if they can be held in a different way as tools, guardians that can, can help us in difficult situations. So the fourth and the last expression of mindfulness that I found very useful is in two parts. One is how we apply this quality of bare attention, meaning the simplicity behind mindfulness. Can it be so simple as to just not add anything to the experience of what's happening? Can we experience, let's say, beauty, something beautiful when we see it, like the sunrise? I actually saw the sunrise today, which is very rare. I don't come on Sunday mornings because I'm usually in bed at this time. (laughs) So I'm here as a last-minute fill-in because Gil was trying to see if he could leave the retreat and come and give the talk. And um, he's asked me on numerous occasions to come and speak on Sunday morning because I've been coming to the center for six or seven years and really I told them I think I've come twice on a Sunday morning. So I probably won't recognize you know, 99% of the faces out here <laughs> or see them. And I was very reluctant, you know. And he says, oh, it's so funny because you're not afraid to sit in front of 120 people but you don't want to get up in the morning. <laughs> That's the reason why you don't want to come do the talk. <laughs> But so I dragged myself out of bed and early enough so that I could have some presence of mind to be here. And I got to see the sunrise. And so something so beautiful as that. And uh, without attaching, you know, lots of background music or (laughs) um, poetry or whatever it is, just something very simple. So there is this quality. The simpler we can make this practice, the less we do. It's a practice, they say, of, of uh, undoing, of letting go of all the things that we attach to our experience. So bear attention. And then the um, second part of this last expression, these are wisdom components, is clear comprehension, is this capacity to experience and see what's happening in the moment from very different perspectives. This allows us to put into context our experience and maybe more applicable in like our daily life experience. So it takes us from this really single-pointed focus of what's happening to a more broader, maybe contextual understanding of our experience of what's happening. So let's say an example of this is almost at the moment we make every choice in our life to get up and do something, like it might be every moment we reach for the fridge. You know, well, what is our motivation behind our action? You know, we get to see it from a different point, not just the hand moving on the fridge and the door opening the fridge, <laughs> you know, and the seeing of all the things in the fridge and the desire. That, but what's the motivation underneath, you know, that action? You know, we start to see and understand. And sometimes um, seeing our motivation can see, oh, is it skillful? Is it suitable for this moment? Is it something I really need? Are we trying to fill some, something else? So there's all these quotes. Is it suitable? And I'm forgetting the last two. <laughs> so here I 
am. I'm hoping that if you guys are interested enough, you'll go <laughs> listen to Joseph's talk or read about it. But um, I almost feel like that's enough because I, actually that's all I have to say. <laughs> so we can review. Sometimes it is the planting of the flag or the post, that quality of steadiness that wants to bring us back to every moment, unwavering quality. Uh, the presence of mind that really asks us to look face-to-face in a very deep and complete way rather than a very light or sidelong mindfulness of our experience. And in that, a presence to be more receptive and not reaching out. This quality of seeing what's skillful or what's not, whether we're on the cushion or out in the world, and these two states of hiri and otapa, or moral shame and dread, that can be useful as guides or guardians for us to help remind us. And uh, these last two wisdom uh, factors are components of mindfulness, the uh, bringing of bare attention, the simplicity of practice, the letting go of all the things we do, less doing or undoing, and maybe understanding motivation behind our actions and the suitability. And maybe one thing now that comes to mind as I'm speaking is this one quality of remembering. Actually, sati means to remember. (laughs) So uh, remember in a different way. Remember um, that to just do the practice, because we can only do it when we remember. But it's... um, also asking us to not lose what's going on in the present moment, not lose that ability to connect to and be with in this very beautiful way. I say offering us a very simple, beautiful way to be with our experience. And mindfulness is the first of the seven factors of awakening. So seen in that way, it is through this door. If we don't have mindfulness, it's not like any of the other factors can really start to unravel for us. But with mindfulness there, it opens the door for all the other factors to, um, to become cultivated, to reveal themselves to us. So there is some... A lot of simplicity to this practice, a lot of gratitude I have for what it has to offer, a lot of offers the freedom from the craziness of my mind that I lived with for more decades than I want to admit. But <laughs> anyways, I feel grateful and I hope some of that was useful in some way, some part of that. And I feel grateful for everybody just showing up. Whether or not that made any sense, it's actually fine if it didn't, because then it will all say, just come back to the breath, <laughs> and it'll all unfold from there. It's enough just to sit and know that you're sitting. You don't have to do much else beyond that. So, yes, we are going to end early. Or I can open it to questions, and I hope I don't stumble along and do make you more com- confused. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. There you go. I've been trying to 
notice how thoughts arise, where they come from. Unfortunately, most of my thoughts arise when I'm not really present. They're there, and I realize that I've had this thought for quite a little while. Would you be able to offer any advice on how to be mindful in a very simple way to just watch thoughts arise? That would be helpful for me. Well, I think sometimes we can see where, when thoughts arise. Sometimes we have that stillness or presence, quiet to actually notice the moment it arises. Sometimes we catch them in the middle of us. St- Sometimes we catch them at the end. Uh, <laughs> so rather than trying to catch them in the beginning, because then that's this... It's a, it's a movement outward. I'm not sure you might know that. It's a movement to get something. We can rest and then just catch it wherever we catch it. And notice, oh, this is the beginning or the middle or the end of a thought. And then what happens then? You know, do we try and go back to figure out where, where it came from? Or can we just be with this is the middle of the thought? What happens if I pay attention to this? just as it is a thought. Does that make any sense? Or hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Um, it's about uh, wholesome remorse. Uh, I have experienced that uh, on occasion when I didn't feel overwhelmed with all the conditioned uh, guilt and uh, whatnot that goes with it. But I wondered if you could comment more on how you work with that conditioned um, all the, the conditioning that comes around remorse and make it healthier? Well, I think just bringing it up as a topic uh, for contemplation is important because oftentimes then we'll just get caught in the conditioned response without noticing or knowing what's going on. And the offering that the Buddhist teachings give, that you know what, there's a, there's a healthy component to this. Actually, does it make sense to you? Does that resonate in some way? And it sounds like it, it does for you. I can't say that it's disappeared for me entirely either, but I'm, let's say I'm more aware of the unhealthy aspects of it, and I can catch myself a little bit sooner before I bludgeon myself as strongly or as often with those things. But I think it is important to know that it has or can have a healthy, skillful component to it. And sometimes it is in um, exploring what it is, the unhealthy component of it. A lot of times guilt is driven by a lot of I, me, mine. There's a lot of ego in guilt. And sometimes exploring that can be quite useful because then we see the components of, of, you know, remorse can be different than guilt. Remorse doesn't have, I noticed after a while, doesn't have that I, me, ego but it has a sense of, oh my God, this is just not skillful. And there's harm that can be caused from this. And there's a deep desire not to continue that. And that's a very beautiful movement of the heart. Um, so I can't say I have all the answers, but I can say that's what I've done in the past, or 
been interested enough to explore it. I, I didn't hear anything explicitly about uh, insight, but I've heard some implicit things sort of in that direction uh, in the answers and also in uh, the fourth element that you talked about there seemed to be not just wisdom, but actually looking toward insight. Can you uh, talk a little more explicitly about the relationship to insight? Well, I guess sometimes it's very useful to hear rather than do, because it's very hard to make insight happen. (laughs) But I have to say, with the cultivation of these practices, I found that it can happen with the clearer understanding of all our experience or phenomena, let's say. When there's bare attention paid to something in its very simple, in this very simple way, free of all our extra stuff, then there's the possibility to see the changing nature of all things, this impermanent, this characteristic of impermanence. Also, when we see when we are with experience in a very complete way, without adding lots of things to it, we also the insight of the unsatisfactoriness of 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 each experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or not, that also can become very apparent to us. You know. So these are the three characteristics. The last one is if we somehow take the ego or I or less and less of that becomes there's less and less of that as we are with our experience or moment to moment experience then there's something that can happen that really allows us to see the selflessness of experience so to me that's the wisdom part you know it, it from insight the insights into the three characteristics that that can come and I have and I would say they evolve when you're not wanting them to evolve. They're not coming because you want the insights. Sometimes it's helpful to know it's possible. To me, like hearing them, I say, oh my God, if that's possible, yes, then I want to keep doing this practice. <laughs> but I found that I would attach to wanting them to happen <laughs> or try and make them happen in a lot of ways, and, and I found that doesn't work either. Yeah, I was wondering uh, if there is something I should be doing Uh, or is it more a matter of just uh, letting it happen? Less doing, I find, less doing and undoing. And sometimes it is maybe maybe a deeper contemplation of what mindfulness is as that first factor of, of awakening that can give us some tools as to how to apply it. Oh, am I here, really here? Is this an unwavering steadiness? Am I really face-to-face with? Am I reaching out? Am I paying attention to what's skillful or not? Am I doing it in a simple way, the bare attention? So I find they're useful tools. And, And it's less in any kind of special experience, but we do do that, I notice. We do try and find the special experience, or we do try and find the insight. And just to notice when that happens. And we'll see often enough that it's, not that skillful or useful, or it's not going to get us the insight we want. So to come back and maybe rest and just sitting here and knowing that you're sitting. Okay, so thank you so much for your attention. I hope you have a wonderful day. Practice.